Well, this morning we do continue, we are going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, as I dove into chapter 8 this week and began to study my way through it, uh, I was struck by a number of different things. We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. We're actually going to finish John chapter 8. It's not a very Josh Tate-esque kind of a sermon. You know, usually we spend about a month and a half on a chapter here. But this morning we are going to go right through John chapter 8. And as I began studying this chapter, which is a continuation, by the way, of the contentious exchange that we've been studying between Jesus and the Pharisees, sometimes the Jesus, not the Jesus and just the common man in the crowd, um, that has been playing out over chapter 7. And now as we go into chapter 8, it's really just a continuation of that same exchange. They've moved a little bit. They've moved to a different part of the temple, we're told. They're now in the treasury, but they're still in the temple. It's still the tail end of the festival of booths, and it is still much the same. And in fact, as we work our way through John chapter 8, there is a fair amount of repetition. For example, in verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Now, we've already covered that ground in spades. You might remember back to the very beginning of our study through the gospel of John. That was a main theme in the opening chapter of John. In the next verses, uh, they have a contentious exchange about whether Jesus can bear testimony about himself. That somebody who bears testimony about themselves, that's illegitimate. Jesus will say, yeah, I can because I'm God, but also God the Father backs me up. So I'm not exactly just testifying about myself. And do you remember when we covered that topic? That's already been happening. He goes on to to explain that to know Jesus is to know the Father. And we've already seen that a couple times in the Gospel of John. Jesus will go on to say that he seeks God's glory, not his own, that he says the things the Father has given him to say, and he does the things that Father has given him to do. It's almost like Jesus is just copying and pasting the text from previous chapters directly here into chapter 8. And again, twice in this chapter, we encounter this mysterious phenomenon where the Pharisees want to arrest him or they want to kill him, but mysteriously, they don't have the agency to act on their desires. And we've seen that a bunch of times so far in the Gospel of John. So again, a lot of this is covering old ground. And it does, um, rather than viewing that as wasted script, I always come away from that with whenever God repeats himself, we should really sit up and pay attention. These are wonderful truths. These are important truths. Things to dwell upon and think about for sure. And just like in chapter 7, the exchange in chapter 8 plays out inside the temple before this mixed crowd. We have the elites and the plebeians standing shoulder to shoulder, all bearing witness to the exchange. And Jesus leads off with this statement that, to put it mildly, rubs the Pharisees the wrong way. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way for a couple of reasons. I think one was the implication that you guys who are not following me, you're following them, are walking in darkness. That's implied in what he says. But probably the bigger concern for the Pharisees is that Jesus is talking in a way that is reserved only for God. Unlike a human being or a prophet or a great teacher who points human beings to their great need of the human soul, Jesus' teaching centers on himself. He doesn't say, let me tell you about the light of the world. He says, I am that light. 
And this is not lost on the Pharisees. The dynamic here is Jesus is claiming right there in front of them in the temple, no less, that he is God. The Pharisees don't believe he's God, so if somebody is in the temple claiming to be God and they are not, which is what the Pharisees mistakenly believe about Jesus, this is the very height of blasphemy. I mean, you cannot get more sacrilegious than what they understand Jesus to be doing. So, of course, none of this is lost on the Pharisees. Throughout John 8, Jesus claims to have authority that's equal with God, that he has the power to judge as God does, and that relationally he is on the same level with God the Father. And all this is too much for the Pharisees. Jesus, again, is claiming to be God right in front of them, in front of the impressionable people, and he's doing it in the temple, which was a sacred place. And then toward the end of the chapter, in verse 53, the Pharisees who have had enough just come right out with it and demand that Jesus just state plainly, stop speaking poetically, stop speaking in riddles, stop speaking in ways that give wiggle room, just say it out loud, who exactly do you claim to be? Who do you make yourself out to be, they ask. And Jesus' answer pushes things to the breaking point. He gives what is arguably the greatest of those I am statements. You know, like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the vine, you are the branches. Here he says to them, when they ask, who, who do you make yourself out to be? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, now, just as a technical point, he is saying here that he had pre-existed Abraham, another claim to divinity. But this would have been far more pointed, of course, in that culture and in that day. Jesus is not dancing around the question at all. He identifies himself as I am. That is the name of God in the Old Testament. This is the name that God gave when Moses put the question to the burning bush. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, out of the burning bush, I am who I am. And that same eternal being who preexisted Abraham, who preexisted the foundations of the earth, who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who made all, and who has no maker himself, is now standing and speaking to the Pharisees in the temple treasury, and when they ask him, who exactly do you make yourself out to be, he tells them, I am. Two more explosive words could not be strung together among those people at that time. And of course, this is too much. The Pharisees pick up stones, and their intention is to kill Jesus right there on the spot. But, because, we're told, it was not yet Jesus' time to die, all that these chained lions can do is roar, bare their teeth, and tug at the end of their chains. Jesus goes out of the temple and continues on his way mysteriously unharmed. 
Now this morning, we're not going to be studying our way through John 8 in a verse-by-verse kind of way. There are a lot of wonderful truths in John 8 that we could study and enjoy together over the span of many Sundays. But as I was preparing for this morning's message, I felt kind of drawn to just zoom out and take in this chapter from 30,000 feet, as it were. What is the big picture takeaway from the length and breadth of this long exchange, which I'm not even going to read word for word, from John 8? And here's the thing that I felt that like the Spirit was showing to me as I was preparing this week. As I already pointed out, Jesus spends a considerable amount of time in this chapter explaining who he is. But interestingly, and really this is true, it seems to me that Jesus spends more words and more passion, much stronger language, trying to explain to the Pharisees who they really are. This is really the main point of what Jesus is saying in John 8. So much of what Jesus says about himself is repeated from previous chapters. But he really is going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 8 trying, arguing with these men about who they really are. If we step back and take in the scene, John 8 is a prolonged effort on the part of Jesus to convince these men that they are not true followers of God but are, in fact, in league with Satan and under the sway of demonic lies. The picture painted for us in these verses would be amusing, really, honestly, if it weren't so tragically serious. We find men absurdly arguing with God himself about whether or not they are, of all things, his followers. (laughs) Like, you're not my followers. I think we're God's followers. (laughs) God's like, no, you're not, and here's why. And this is basically the tit-for-tat exchange throughout John chapter 8. And so this is the overall tone of the chapter, and this does reveal a troubling strategy on the part of the enemy. And this is why I think it's important for us as God's people today to have this conversation because it's a strategy that we still see the enemy employing against the church today. Satan is described in Ephesians 6.11 as a schemer. So he's a strategist. He's somebody who looks on the church and he views with intentionality how he's going to corrupt our faith in God and lead us away from the truth of the gospel, from an assurance based on grace. He's scheming, he's strategizing, And when I look at my own life, when I look at the lives of fellow believers, sometimes I'm concerned that I'm not living the Christian life with as much intentionality and strategy as the enemy is in opposing the work of God in my life. So so he's a strategist, and here's the truth about Satan's strategy that he's using against God's people in that day and in that time, and that we see manifested in the Pharisees, and which Jesus is so aggressively countering in John chapter 8. Satan is not trying to lure people away into a life of open debauchery where they just reject God's law wholesale and say, we're just going to be wicked all the time. That's not his strategy there. And maybe it's not his strategy in my life or yours either. These men that Jesus is trying to convince are not true followers of God are clean, 
moral, church-going, upright, and deeply religious. They sincerely believe they are on the side of God and the angels. But Jesus makes it plain that they are actually in league with Satan and in the grip of demonic lies. At times, Jesus describes the Pharisees as hypocrites, which is to say that they are trying very hard to deceive others about themselves. But in this passage, what Jesus seems to be confronting is not so much their efforts to deceive others, which is certainly true of them, but also their self-deception. They are at their core self-deceived. They're living in the midst of delusions. These men are really delusional, self-deceived, and again, I do believe that this remains a problem even today. This is actually a common theme in the Bible. Three times in the opening chapter of James, we're warned against the dangers of being deceived. In verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 26, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle the tongue, but he's deceived his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Self-deception is the hardest kind of deception to detect. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I think Jesus had people who were self-deceived in mind when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Vance Havner once gave this quote. He said, a $10 bill got into circulation and did a lot of good. It helped buy coal for the needy. It helped buy medication for a sick child and showed up in the collection plate at the church one day. Then it fell into the hands of a bank teller who spotted it as a counterfeit. The test is not how many good deeds we claim to our credit, but rather can we pass inspection in the sight of God. Now at this point, I feel the desperate need to address a concern. By speaking in this way, I am worried that I may be inviting some of you to come with me to a potentially dangerous place where misunderstandings abound. This might be construed by some as an invitation to question your salvation. James spoke about the possibility of being deceived. Jesus spoke those chilling words in response to those who cried out to him, Lord, Lord, saying, I never knew you. May none of us hear those words. Maybe you're the sort of Christian who wrestles with doubt more than other believers and who naturally struggles to trust and believe in God's promises. And so right now you might be feeling nervous and on edge. So I found myself trying to walk a fine line this week as I prepared this message. On the one hand, I don't want to stampede genuine but doubt-filled believers into a panic that maybe they're not saved after all. 
That would be very contrary to the heart of my God, who at every move wants to settle those worries back down in worshipful appreciation for the bedrock, unmovable promises of God that are simplicity itself. And if that's you, if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, I want you to be able to rest in God's promises this morning. More than me wanting that, that is the heart of God, which I'm doing my level best to represent from behind the pulpit this morning. However, on the other hand, the Bible does warn that some church folk, like these Pharisees, are deceived. And I don't want to allow a sleepy, fat-hearted, self-deceived person to continue one more dangerous day slumbering comfortably in the midst of their delusions on their way to hell. To the one, I need to somehow speak words of assurance while simultaneously speaking to the others in a way that will stab their hearts wide awake to the danger of their predicament. So how exactly does a preacher yell fire (laughs) into a crowded room like this? The gospel is not complicated or difficult to understand. It is not. It is simplicity itself. It is this truth that Jesus on the cross took all the penalty for your sins. And that when you embrace that free gift of salvation, all of your sins, past, present, and future, died with Jesus on that cross. And that when Jesus was raised from the grave, you were raised with him, imperishable, into newness of life. This is the gospel hope. So it's not complicated. It's not difficult to understand. If you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, Jesus alone for salvation, you are saved. God's promises to you are sure. You can take them to the bank. But even as I say the gospel is not complicated, it is exact. There's precision involved when we talk about a narrow gate, as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount that those who enter into life enter do so through a narrow gate. We're not aiming our lives at the broad side of a barn. It's exact, it's precise. The foundation of our hope, the basis of our standing before God, there's precision involved. And so if you have added anything to the simplicity of Jesus doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself, you're not yet a Christian. If you make it less than that, it's the fullness of what Jesus did. All of our hope, all of it, rests on Jesus. He paid it all, and that's the hope. We bring nothing. We bring no resume of good works. We bring nothing to commend ourselves. This is the hope. So it is exact. This kind of language that is repeated so often in Scripture does call us to be precise and narrow about that basis of our hope. On September 1st, 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 was on the last leg of a flight from New York City to Seoul, South Korea. They had a stopover in Anchorage, Alaska. So they landed, they refueled, and when they took off, the navigator on board the plane entered numbers into the navigation system that would put them on a trajectory for Seoul, South Korea. To the best of our evidence, the navigator misentered that number stream by one digit. This was disastrous. Slowly, incrementally, 
over a period of miles, the plane veered off of its intended flight path and strayed into Soviet airspace. It was flying over the Kamchatka Peninsula, unbeknownst to them. The Kamchatka Peninsula had a lot of military installations, and the U.S. was used to flying planes close to the border so that it could do its best to spy at a legal distance. But this plane just flew directly over the Kamchatka Peninsula, and the Soviet Union scrambled jets, and they shot it down. Hundreds of people died. It was a great tragedy at the time. And I think something similar is happening in this exchange in John chapter 8. It seems clear to me as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees that he's trying to make them aware, figuratively speaking, of their whereabouts. They have drifted way off course. These men have strayed far, far from the way, the truth, and the life into a very dangerous place. They are seemingly oblivious to the fact that, spiritually speaking, they are on a disastrous trajectory, one that can only lead in death, lead to death. They obviously think they're in one place. They say they're free and have never been enslaved, that they are Abraham's children and thereby heirs of the covenant promises, and that they have one Father, even God. But Jesus tells them that they are not free, they're slaves to sin. And that rather than being children of God, they resemble more their father, Satan. In John 8, 31 through 47, we read this exchange. It is a fairly long exchange. And so forgive me, whenever anybody reads to me, I tend to just kind of start falling asleep. So hang in. If it helps to follow along in your Bibles, do so. I'm going to be picking this up at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my, oh, I already read that, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We, are, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do, you not, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, 
for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. We'll stop right there. Jesus in this exchange speaks to two things that govern these Pharisees, these counterfeit followers of God. One, he speaks of slavery, that they're slaves of sin. And the other, he talks about their, their spiritual parentage. Who is their spiritual father? Now, these are two important, different ways of looking at these Pharisees. A slave, of course, is somebody who has no will of their own. They're mastered. They have a master who tells them what to do. And so Jesus, on the one hand, is saying to these Pharisees, you are mastered by something. You have no will of your own. You're operating out of a nature that is governed by a master sin. Sin is what masters you. You're a slave of sin. That's your nature. You cannot do but sin because that's who you are. That's your nature. That's what has mastered you. But then he also speaks of who their father is. And of course, one's relationship to their father is fundamentally different than that of a slave to, them, to, them, to a master. Isn't that true? Somebody, at least, and this may not be true to our dynamics with our own earthly fathers, perhaps. My own children are in the room. They can testify to this. But sometimes, I think at least as it's envisioned in this analogy that Jesus is employing, is that the son is is drawn into obedience to their father out of affection, out of familial bonds. In other words, what they're doing is all wrapped up in their affections, what they want. And so here he's saying, you're mastered by sin, you have no will of your own, your nature is showing, you're a slave to it. But he's also saying, but there's also the matter of your wants and your affections. You're, you, you love the things of your father, and they are not the things of God the Father. So Jesus is saying both of these things in, in employing these two analogies. Slaves have no will of their own. They must do what their master commands. And when Jesus speaks of their father, he is all at once speaking of family resemblance, that there will be a spiritual familial likeness with our spiritual father, but also he is, a, he is speaking of what we love our affections. Jesus says here that the truth will set us free. Christians talk about being free in Christ all the time. But to many non-believers, they look at the life of a Christian and it looks to them like the very opposite of freedom. I used to have a friend named George, and he says that the Bible exists to control people. He says we're not free. We're controlled like sheep, and the Bible is just the tool that people have used to beat us into submission, to stop thinking for ourselves. This is his idea. He thinks, how would I be free if I became a Christian? You say I could be free in Christ. How would I be free if I became a Christian? If I became a Christian, then I can't do whatever I want anymore, right? Isn't it true that the Bible has a bunch of rules in it, and Christians have to follow those rules? And don't you have to give up Sunday mornings to go to church? I've heard you might even have to give up some sins that you enjoy. 
And don't Christians call Jesus their Lord? Well, I'm sorry, but if you have a Lord, you ain't free. That's his thinking. Now, we know that we are not compelled to do the things that God has required out of duty, but out of love. We delight in doing the will of our Father. In becoming a Christian, we did not decide between our happiness and Jesus. We are pursuing our happiness in Jesus. We have found the supreme happiness, the highest, the best, the fullest, the deepest, and longest-lasting happiness in Christ. But even so, this is how my friend George's and many other people's reasoning goes. They think you're not free. You have a king, a lord, and a pretty demanding one at that. He demands obedience and sacrifice. He demands that you change and that you get rid of anything that might rival him. So, does my friend George have a point when he objects and says that we're not free? In, how many of you have ever seen the old 1978 movie Midnight Express? It tells the story of Billy Hayes. He was an American citizen who went to Turkey and got, got pinched over there for smuggling hashish. And so this young American teenager smuggling hashish into Turkey, this child of great American privilege, is thrown into the brutal realities of the Turkish prison system. It is just awful. It is like a great advertisement about never getting involved in drug dealing. <laughs> and, uh, and just it's a horrible story of everything he went through in the Turkish prison system. The amazing thing is, is that he did eventually escape he escaped from prison in Turkey, fled to Greece, he flew home to the United States, and when he landed at the airport, his story had been much publicized, and there was lots of the press and media there to see his, uh, his reunion with his family. Somebody shoves a microphone in Billy's face and says, you know, what does it feel like? How, you know, what do you, and he says, I'm free. I'm free, he said. And it does raise a question. What did he mean? Does he really think he's free from the laws of gravity? Didn't he realize that he's still accountable to the laws of the United States? He still has to pay taxes and stop at stop signs. He can't smuggle hashish here any more than he could do it in Turkey. What does he mean he's free? Does he think he can do anything he wants? Well, of course that's not what he means. He means that he's free from the horrible place where he was. So when we as Christians talk about our freedom in Christ, we are not talking about a general freedom. We're not saying that we are now completely autonomous and uninfluenced by anything or anybody external to ourselves. Adam and Eve did not have that kind of freedom in the perfection of the garden. There were rules in the garden that were given for their good. Only God is completely autonomous in the way that my friend George imagines. So when Jesus speaks of slavery, he is not saying that we can successfully be on our own, our very own masters. George has this idea that being free is like being a wolf that's released into the wild and doesn't even have a tracking collar on them. They're just free. They can run up into the mountains. They can do whatever they want. But at least as the Bible presents freedom, we're not like wolves released into the wild, our own masters. 
We are more like dogs that have been freed from the misery of the pound into the care of a loving master. The language of the Bible is clear and explicit on this point. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And you might first look at that and say that that conflicts with Galatians 5.1 that says that we are free in Christ. But that again misunderstands the kind of freedom that you were designed for. Imagine this. I know boats are not sentient and they cannot speak. But imagine if they were. And there's a boat tied up at the dock. And as you come up to get in there and you're about to settle your weight down onto the seat and start working the oars, the boat says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm glad you're here. We need to have a talk. I am tired of you having you as my captain. I want to be free. You leave me here for days at a stretch, tied up to the dock, and then when you want to go do stuff, (laughs) we go where you want to go, and you put heavy things in here, and we paddle here, we paddle there. I want to be free. I've had it. And so the owner of the boat says, okay, I will grant you your wish. I'll make you free. And he unties it, and he shoves the boat off from the dock, and it drifts out into the water. Is that boat free? No. No. It just became a slave of the wind and the waves. It's going to get washed up on the rocks and destroyed. This is the nature of freedom that is confronting us as human beings. If we say to God, I want to be free of you. I no longer want to have you as my master. I'm sick and tired of doing what you tell me to do going where you tell me to go, saying what you tell me to say. I no longer want to do your bidding. Just cut me loose. Make me free. Then you become a slave to sin. You become driven by something else. Just as surely as Jesus was at the oars paddling, you clear of the reef, filling you with a good cargo, taking you to a good destination. That is no longer your life. You are now driven by the wind and waves of a sin nature that will inevitably wash you up on the rocks and destroy you. This is the dynamic of the human soul. Bob Dylan said very famously in his song, you gotta serve somebody. And it's true. You gotta serve somebody. We can have, but here's the great thing about the gospel. Here's the great thing about the Bible. The Bible says, God has said very clearly, you can choose your master. You can choose to be a slave of the wind and waves or you can choose to have me as your captain and I'll take care of you. When you get broken, I'll patch you up. I'll steer you clear of the rocks. You're going to have a useful, productive existence filled with joyful things. (laughs) This is what it will be. But he is a respecter of our decisions. He is. And so if we say, I won't have that, I want to be free, he allows that. So in what sense are we free? In what sense are these Pharisees slaves? These Pharisees have rejected God as their Lord. They really have. And they're now slaves to sin. But they don't yet recognize it because they're so self-deceived. Their biggest problem is not that they misunderstand Jesus and his demands, although they certainly do misunderstand that too. Their biggest problem is that they misunderstand themselves. Everyone is a slave in the spiritual sense. 
We're either slaves to sin, which is our natural state as fallen human beings, or we are slaves to Christ. The writers of the New Testament willingly declared their status as slaves of Christ. Paul opens his letters to the Romans, to Titus, to others by saying, I'm a slave of Jesus, slave of God. James, and this is very uh, incredible because James is Jesus' little brother, and I can't imagine writing this about any of my brothers, but that's because none of my brothers are God. But he says, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most translations there might use servant or bondservant, but in the Greek, the word is doulos, and it means literally slave. In John 8.34, Jesus tells the unbelieving Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. He uses the analogy of a slave and his master to make the point that a slave obeys his master because he belongs to him. He's overmastered by him. Slaves have no will of their own. They're literally in bondage to their masters. And when sin is our masters, we are unable to do but. But by the power of Christ to overcome the power of sin, as it says in Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Still a slave. But how joyous is it to be a slave to such a wonderful master as Jesus? So when Jesus says of these Pharisees, whose whole life consists of obeying the laws of God, this is their whole life. Their whole life is wrapped up in obedience to the law. He says, you're slaves to sin. How? Well, this is, again, we come back to Satan as a strategist. This is his strategy. If Satan cannot entice a person into doing the wrong thing openly and without shame, He is just as happy to have us do the right things for the wrong reasons. These men, who again are clean, moral, upright, religious, have settled upon obedience to the law as a means to self-exalt, to self-glorify, to make themselves their own savior. They have relegated God to somebody that they have to do business with, but they can earn They can make it work. They're gritty. They pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And the thing to notice here about this is this. This has a direct impact on the way they view other human beings. We become what we worship. G.K. Beale said, what we revere, we resemble. And these guys, in their view of God, as somebody who is a God not of grace, not of mercy, not the kind of God who would come and pay the penalty for the sins of sinners, but he's a God who demands that you save yourself. How is that going to translate into the way that they relate to other human beings? Certainly not a heart of compassion certainly not a heart of grace and mercy towards people who are in sin. No, they have nothing but judgment for that. Arrogant contempt. And so Jesus now transitions from this talk of slavery that you guys don't even have a clue where you are on the map. You think you're servants of God? Well, you're slaves to sin. And now he makes the transition from what has mastered them into talking about what they resemble. Here's the proof. 
that you are mastered by sin. Here's the proof that you're a counterfeit bill. You're not the real thing. And it shows up in your wants, in your desires. We've all heard the expression that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And the same is true spiritually. Again, we become what we worship. And Jesus points out that these guys don't look a thing like the God of the Bible. Just really don't. Incidentally, the Pharisees will essentially respond in kind. In verse 48, they're going to question Jesus' parentage. They're going to say, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? This is a not so veiled by saying he's a Samaritan. He's saying you have no idea who your dad is. Samaritans were a mixed-race people where the Jews had intermarried with pagan peoples and they had mixed religious practice and the Jews looked with great contempt on their neighbors, the Samaritans. And so in saying to Jesus, hey, you're probably a Samaritan. We heard that your mom got pregnant before got married to Joseph, maybe. I don't know if that's part of it, but they are saying that here. They're saying you don't know who your dad is. And really, it's them kind of saying, I know you are, but what am I? Jesus has just finished saying, well, your dad is Satan. And they say, well, you don't even know who your dad is, so (laughs) maybe you have a demon. (laughs) That's essentially what they're saying. They're not even that creative. They're just like, oh, yeah, well, you are. That's basically what they say. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here contrasted is the heart of God and the heart of Satan, which are at polar ends. They're they're completely different. Jesus is going to say in John 10.10, which is the next chapter we're going to study, by the way. We're going to skip John chapter 9 because we covered that last fall. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to say, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And and here we find people who resemble the thief, the killer, the destroyer, in conversation when the one who came to give life and have it abundantly. Jesus is doing his best to give these murderers life, and they're doing their best to kill him. And Jesus is saying the contrast between my father and your father couldn't be more stark and it's showing up in the hearts that are represented by you and me. I'm the life giver. You want to kill me and I've done no wrong. This is it. This is the contrast. Christ calls his followers to give our lives. In Mark 10:45, for even the son of man came not to not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 15, 13, he told his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the Christian life is one of willingly laying down our life in service to others, maybe even laying down our life in a not metaphorical sense. But these people are all about taking lives, both figuratively and and, um, literally. They don't live their life in service to others, they exploit. They take, they destroy, and here they are scheming quite literally to kill Jesus. These men in their, in their desire to kill Jesus reveal their resemblance to the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. They bear a family resemblance. 
to the murderer and the deceiver, not to Jesus, the life-giving God of truth. The Pharisees of the Bible believed in a God who demanded that they prove their devotion. And so their hearts, of course, have become twisted toward other people who, viewed, who they viewed as less. The way they related to others was a direct reflection of how they understood the dynamic between God and fallen man. And the reason why Jesus has so run afoul of these men is because he came to the people with a true picture of God. He's come to them saying, God loves you, God is for you, God is a God of mercy, a God of grace. God came to save sinners. I've come from God on a mission of grace and mercy, and that is what the heart of God is like. And these guys who are listening are offended by that because that's not their view of God, and it's not who they are. They are responding to the word of grace and truth in a way that's false and counterfeit. So I think those are important truths to draw out of John 8. This is a prolonged conversation between Jesus and these men, convincing them. This again is the heart of our God. Wouldn't it be, um, wouldn't it be like me to just say, you guys are on your own. Forget you. Jesus here, though, hangs in there in a very unpleasant conversation full of accusations, insults, meanness. And it might sound at first, he does say that they're liars. It might sound like he's doing tit for tat, but I'm telling you, he's trying to throw water on a sleeping person. He's shouting to that airplane, you are in Soviet airspace. You are not in a safe place at all. It's because I love you that I'm telling you you are way off course. He says here in verse 51, at the very end of the chapter, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and who is he talking to? He's talking to these guys. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He wants them to embrace life. He wants them to come to the truth. He is pursuing them patiently, doggedly, passionately. And really, that's what's on the table here in front of us today. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What does that mean to keep the word of Christ? Well, it means that when we come to the gospel, when we look to the Bible and those truths, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, and that now for those who have put their trust in Jesus, there is nothing in heaven or earth or anything in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to be sure, when we talk about this, when we give our lives to Christ, it will result in us being given a new nature. How important is this to understand? If before we were slaves to sin... Now we are slaves to righteousness. In becoming a Christian, it's not just that you've 
It's not like when I join a political party or a labor union or I join the military where I just, I go to the office, I sign up and they say, okay, you're on the registry now. It's not like you just go into an office somewhere and you say, I've given mental assent to the gospel so I'm a Christian and that's all it is. I've signed up, I'm one of the group. It's just as simple as that. But what happens in the life of a believer is something mysterious. There comes a transformation. There comes the new nature. In 2 Corinthians, it says that you have been made into a new creation. You've been made new. So when we say we've been set free, we mean that we've been freed from the consequences of our sins, sure. But also, we've been freed from our own sin nature and have been given a new nature in Christ. What is freedom? Freedom is doing what we want. The only way to be free in Christ and a slave of Christ is to want to be a slave. This is why it's so so important to speak of that transformation, that new nature that is given to us by the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian. As fallen human beings, we are full of disordered desires and misshapen longings. And when we look at these Pharisees, we see that they are completely governed by them. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. But when we become Christians and we gain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our very wants begin to become transformed. Not perfectly, not all at once. But we are free in Christ because now we want Christ and Christ's likeness. We have a growing, mysterious love for righteousness. We want to be like the God who has saved us. The Pharisees are counterfeit followers of God, and this is revealed most pointedly by their wants. They are governed by their sinful passions. They're slaves to them. And so I do think this is a time for us to take sober stock of our walk with Christ. Don't get hung up on the fact that you ever have sinful wants and desires. That will continue until the day that Christ comes back. I'm not saying that in becoming a Christian, those things just magically disappear. But is there a struggle? Is there a fight? Do you want to be like Jesus? I think sometimes uh, people will say, yeah, I struggle with that sin. Well, I'll make it more honest. Sometimes I say that. (laughs) When really what I mean is I've kind of made my peace with that sin. I'm not really struggling with it so much as I've just kind of figured out how to live with it, you know. I, I, I like to think in the Bible of when the Israelites came into the promised land. They're brought in by a miracle, right? And that's a picture of how all of us came to Christ. We can't boast, we can't brag. Uh, They came into the promised land because God parted the Jordan River. They They passed through on dry ground. And you have likewise entered into the promises of Christ by way of a miracle that you can't brag about. Just like the Jews heaped up a pile of stones on the far side of the Jordan as a memorial to what God had done, not what they had done. The table of communion is that kind of a memorial for us where we come to that table as a reminder that we didn't enter in because we're hardworking or we're good. What brought us into the promised land, the land of promise, heaven, was Jesus's, what Jesus did for us. That's the sum total of our hope. 
But do you know what happened when the Israelites came into the promised land? This gets much less press than the parting of the river. But once they were all across, what happened to that river? Flowed back in behind them, sealing them in. And in every corner of that land were strongholds of people who were deeply opposed to God and his people. And this is a picture of your heart when you become a Christian. You've been justified. You've brought in by a promise you had nothing to do with it. It was completely miraculous. And now though you've been given a new nature, a warrior spirit, you've been prompted by, if you are a genuine Christian today and you're hearing this word, you look on your inner world and you see strongholds of sin. They are there, don't deny them. But what is your attitude towards those strongholds? Are you a warrior towards them? Do you hate them? Do you desire, do you strategize, do you think about how I'm going to root them up, tear them down, and burn them up utterly? I'm going to completely remove them from my heart. I'm going to make my wild heart a garden of fruit. This is the spirit of a Christian, where we're not driven by the wind and the waves. We are being captain right into a battle. (laughs) That's what it is. When the Israelites looked at the promised land, they saw these strongholds that had to be defeated. And I've got them in my heart, you've got them in yours. And so one of the marks of a counterfeit Christian is where they say that's who we are, but it's not. They've just made their peace with all kinds of sins. They've, they're collaborating with those strongholds. And so that's the challenge, I think, from John 8, is what are my wants? What masters me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this challenge out of John 8. And God, perhaps more than anything, I'm just grateful for what I see here, which is a God that patiently pursues. God, you came after me when I was just as alien and far off as these Pharisees. And were it not for the grace of God, I would be like one of them. Father, help us not to even look on the Pharisees with contempt or arrogance. Because again, apart from your grace, we would be just as lost, just as confused. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us this week to be like Jesus in patiently making the argument to people who just don't seem to understand the danger of their predicament. But God, I also pray that you would help us, by your Holy Spirit, to be mastered by righteousness We who once were slaves to sin, make us willing, cheerful slaves to righteousness. Help us to delight in the fact that you are the captain and that we go where you call us to go and that we do what you have commanded us to do. But God, give us a warrior spirit for those strongholds that remain in our life. Those areas of sin, God, that are opposed to you and are opposed to what's closest to your heart in our lives. God, help us to tear them down utterly. Father, in all this, I pray, Lord, that you would show us to be slaves of righteousness and true sons of God, sons and daughters of God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.